Hey buddies, in this episode I speak with Lieutenant Colonel Craig Haggard. So first I want to go ahead and say thank you so much for clicking on this video. It really does mean a lot to me that you gave me a shot. I know that I can get a little bit of dry sometimes. I'm not the greatest. I'm still learning. Okay, give me a break. So in this episode, I speak with Lieutenant Colonel Craig Haggard. This episode, to me, is pretty awesome. I really enjoyed talking with him. Obviously, like always, I talked with him for an hour before, and we had a fantastic discussion, and we never did record it. Then we decided to start. We still had a fantastic discussion over leadership qualities and how to be an effective leader. But still, I'd love to have that first hour, but at another day for another time. So if you if you enjoy this episode, go ahead and hit that like button. Subscribe to this channel. Share this video with your friends. Leave a comment down below. The biggest thing you can do is share the video with your friends and family or even your coworkers too. Or if you're annoyed at somebody, just go ahead and send them something. You could send them this. I would appreciate that. So let me know what you guys think down in the comment section down below. What you think of this episode? I'll be looking forward to uh, seeing your guys' responses. Please enjoy. All right. And we're recording now. All right. Craig, thank you so much for coming back on, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are yeah, you doing great. today? Doing great. So you're Lieutenant Colonel Craig Haggard. This is your second time being on the podcast, the time before. You want me to call you the Colonel, or do you want me to call you? The <laughs> you can call Colonel? me anything. So I guess number one, I guess I didn't suck too bad before when I was on the <laughs> no, podcast. It wasn't um, too bad at all. You can call me Craig or Merle. Merle. That was my call sign forever. So half the people that know me call me Merle. Some Craig. Some. So how do you get your call sign? <laughs> so it's not like the movies. Okay. You know, you see, say Top Gun, yeah, it's yeah, Hollywood Top Killer, it. Maverick, all this kind of stuff. Most of the time, and those out there that have flown fighters know that a tremendous amount of you, of us, got our call signs from a couple of things. One, doing something really stupid. Mm -hmm. uh, mine was a play on my name, Haggard, Merle Haggard, and it was from an on-wing I had in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, walks in in a flight suit and boots and country boy and, you know, Haggard, Merle Haggard, and it's stuck. And at first I thought, oh, man, it sucks. I'm not cool. Like, <laughs> I'm not maverick, you know. And, and then I saw some really bad ones. I had friends, so um, let's see, some of my friends troll, Goat Boy, <laughs> Ram Strike, Otis. Uh, these are all real names. I had a buddy uh, named John Ray that flew. I flew Harriers with. And he, when he was in his squadrons, it was his own little personal joke when new guys came in. He'd try to give them the worst call sign ever until he kind of, the skipper said, hey, dude, you can't I don't want my guys being called. Well, like one, Mike, uh, was he was a big dummy. But the, and the skipper one time said, guys, we can't have, I don't want one of my my Marines being called Big Dummy. So we called him BD. Um, so yeah, most of the time, and there was a guy, Eric Stingley, when I was with the guard, Indiana guard I flew with, and his call sign was Stinger. And you think that's cool, right? Like, cool. Yeah, man, I'm cool. I'm Stinger, Stinger Missile. No, it wasn't it at all. It's not even Stingley, which is his last name. It was because he got fairly intoxicated out in Tucson. <laughs> And I think if I, the story goes right, and sorry if anybody knows him, but whatever. <laughs> it's a funny story. And he passed out, I believe, or, or I should say he took a nap in the desert and got stung on the eyeball by a, oh by a scorpion, I think it was, and then tried to play it off and show up the next day to fly with his, his head swollen up. And anyway, that's how Stinger. We had a guy named Otis who got arrested <laughs> in San Antonio for public intox and then wouldn't just shut up and go to jail or because they were, I think they were probably not going to, I don't know that they still did anything with him, but 
anyway, uh, so he was after that big event. He was called Otis the Town Drunk and probably one of the ones, <laughs> Otis the you know, from Andy Griffith's show. And one of the worst, and I'll shut up on the call signs, is is a guy that out of Beeville, Texas, Naval Air Station Beeville, uh, when it was still open, he was an instructor down there. And when we moved on orders, the military would move our stuff, but our, our lawnmowers, they couldn't have gas in them. But in base housing, you had to, before you left, there's a checklist, you know, do this, that, clean that, mow the yard. So he's mowing his yard, got it done. The movers were there to do it. So he immediately starts to empty the gas. And you being a fire guy, I know what will happen. Gas hits hot engine, blows up. <laughs> the guy gets third degree burns all over his arms and neck and face. And so his, his brothers lovingly changed his call sign to fireball. <laughs> You know, so, but that's how, and you know this from probably being, I imagine it's the same thing when you're in those situations that you do that are dangerous and you lose people and, and you're, you work hard, but then you play hard. We say things that civilians would think was very mean to each yeah. other. And I always say to people, if I treat you with the greatest respect and, and don't joke around and, you know, you just walk the line when I meet you. I probably don't like you. <laughs> if I'm talking about your sister or teasing you or making jokes, you know, later on, I probably actually like you because I'm giving you crap when I first meet you. <laughs> now, I won't take those lessons to the house floor. <laughs> I will be respectful, so don't think I don't like you because uh, I don't want to jump up on the podium and start, you know, making fun of somebody's sister or anything like that. But, <laughs> but in the military, those guys in the military know our sense of humor is a little bit different. Yeah, and I think it's sense. because you're in those... Yeah, those situations, and I'm sure just like you, you know, where your situations where you have death and tragedy and stuff like that, we used a uh, sense of humor a lot of time, inappropriate sense of humor, uh, to deal with those feelings. It's an easy way to mask just having the sadness. It is. From whatever you're talking about or whatever you're going through. It's yeah. just so much easier just to crack a joke. That's right. I just tell my wife, you take all those horrible feelings, you bury them real deep and shove them down deep inside. And then years later, when you cry at every Hallmark commercial, then you get help. I'm totally kidding, by the way. It is good to talk about stuff. And that is, and that, in, in all seriousness, that is one of the issues we have. A lot of those guys and gals that experience this bad stuff do have to swallow that and really put it down deep. And it, and it causes a lot of issues, hence our probably... Um, high rate of deployments, the suicides, the, all that kind of stuff, drinking issues. Um, I lost my brother-in-law to something that involved, you know, a lot of, a lot of bad stuff and, and what I would say PTSD and alcohol. And, and uh, so it's a serious thing. I don't mean to joke about it, but once again, it's, mm -hmm. it's how we deal with that bad stuff. So it's how we deal with stress. I'm reading a book right now. That's a, it's actually called on combat and, it's by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, mm -hmm. and he. I'm at the part right now where he's talking a little bit about sleep deprivation with like soldiers fighting overseas and, mm -hmm. and getting in firefights and having multiple hours on, you know, either mortar rounds or just being in active battle and with the adrenaline dumps that they'll have. And then right after they're done fighting, they just pass out. They fall asleep because they're mm -hmm. just so exhausted and so tired. And then you could tell who the newer guys were. were versus who the older guys were because after a battle you could tell the new guys just pass right out because they're so tired mm -hmm. but the older guys you can see that they'd have they'd stay awake because they're they're still getting they're more used to that type of a trauma so then when they come home they're really struggling with sleep they're really struggling with controlling uh, like behavioral issues like with alcoholism or substance abuse and then that's one of the factors that leads in from like sleep deprivation and stress and all or all sorts of call signs leading up until or to suicide, mm -hmm. which it is crazy to think about that sleep deprivation can be one of the factors for it. But there's a ton of, there's a ton of stuff out there. Well, you think about it, if you don't sleep even for days, they talk about how you actually at a certain point, you actually have brain cells that start to mm -hmm. die. 
it mimics similar behavior to being intoxicated mm-hmm. or on drugs and, and stress levels go up. I mean, it just, it, it literally hurts the body and organs and things like that just from sleep deprivation, things like that. So we actually, when we flew in certain scenarios, uh, were given, uh, speed. Really? Uh, so it was, uh, we called them go, go and no go pills. I know. And it was, that's, <laughs> but it was basically speed and Ambien and it was a medical form Looked of like it. an amphetamine. Yeah. Okay. And we yeah. weren't like meeting under the bridge. Hey, Johnny, I need some stuff. I'm going to combat, man. <laughs> you start rubbing it in your yeah. teeth and your gums. No, but we would. We were be, so it's kind of funny when we were first, before we could fly with anything. We had, what was it you flew? What was it you flew? Uh, so in the Marine Corps, I flew AV-8B Harriers, the, um, the fighter, the attack jet, basically, that uh, hovered and stuff. And uh, then when I was in the Guard, I flew F-16s. Okay. And... Um, but they would meet you. Well, we first had to get tested by the flight surgeon, gave us the pills, and they're like, okay, go home and come back tomorrow. Tell us how you felt if you, you know, if you, you know, went crazy, jumped off your roof, punched a cat, whatever, <laughs> or, or were you normal, you know? So they had to you test us to make sure, whatever. So I never punched a cat. No <laughs> animals were harmed in the making of this episode. But, uh, but they wanted to see how your body reacted to it before then you'd go in a cockpit and fly with it. And um, so, but I remember taking the the go pill as we called it and um just being insanely awake all night you know it was it was actually it sucked because you couldn't really i'm like man i'm not gonna get any sleep and uh but anyway once you were cleared hey that didn't affect you and then at that point if you were in a scenario whether it was combat or lack of hours or you're taking a jet across the ocean so the time zones changed or whatever they would a flight surgeon would be at the plane you would sign out the drugs take them with you and then and then you flew either your mission or taking ferrying jets over or whatever. And then they would meet you at the plane or somebody would to then sign those back in um, if you didn't take them. So, wow. so, like, so it was a controlled substance and you had yeah. to, and so they'd mark whether you did or didn't. And I did take them when I needed to, because really the most dangerous times besides when you're getting shot at or whatever, but you know, landing situations or you're tired and then where you have to be sharp and nighttime in an unfamiliar field or whatever kind of thing. So if I was coming into that situation about an hour out, I'd go ahead and take it. So I was sharp. So how did you feel when you were flying? So like, obviously you knew how you felt completely sober of mind, just naturally uh, running off of whatever adrenaline that you Mm -hmm. had versus when you're coming into land and you go ahead and take one of your, your go pills what was the change that you noticed? Was it better than just sitting normally or was it just like, this is a whole nother level. I'd like to fly like this all the time. No, it definitely wasn't that. But in those, like I said, in those scenarios where you're flying and you're changing time zones. And at some point, I remember when we were taking jets over to Kadena, um, we took off from around Indiana or Terre Haute. And then we were supposed to wait for the, uh, uh, refueling jets over. We were just off the coast of California we waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and they were delayed. I can't remember why. Um, tanker guys, they probably had to go to the buffet or something, but <laughs> I'm just kidding, tanker guys. <laughs> but anyway, they were late for whatever reason. And then by the time we got out there, and also when we were flying behind a tanker and you're refueling, you actually slow down. So you're not going fast, so it mm-hmm. lengthens your trip. And just to be honest with you, I remember on that one, gosh, it seemed like the entire day I was in. I mean, think about that. When you're in, that was in an F-16. You're sitting there, and it's the long flights overseas on an airliner. You can get up, you can walk around, you can go to the bathroom, you can do whatever. You're sitting in that seat for the 12 or 14 hours we were that day, and you're not moving. I mean, and and um, didn't have the little Bluetooth mm-hmm. 
music things. Actually, I'll admit we did take like a little, I had like this little Walkman. You remember the Walkman thing? <laughs> and I had like ear earplugs I'd put in one ear underneath the mask, underneath my earpiece and listen to music or whatever. Um, but you're tired and you're doing things just to keep your mind awake and stuff like that. So in those situations, yeah, I think I, I was definitely more sharp because, but if you're out on a flight where you had plenty of rest and you're just fighting locally or whatever, I didn't need them. I was, I felt good. And, and I don't like, I'm fortunate because I don't have that personality. I think you do have people that have personalities or an addictive personality that, Oh, I felt this. I need this. I'm a guy that prefers not to have drugs. Um, I had probably a drawer full until I got rid of them. I've had, we've talked about, I think before a lot of surgeries and they, you know, I think I had oxy and, and the hydrocodones and all this kind of stuff. And I never took them because I don't like the feeling of my body being different than normal. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, and I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know if situations where guys did, I'm not saying that it wasn't abused. I'm sure it was. Everything's always abused in some way or another, but I, I know the guys that I flew with were fairly professional Notice I said fairly, <laughs> depending on the situation. But um, when needed, we did. And then the ambient pills were just so you could more than like you said, sometimes when you have that high or you're up and you're you can't get to sleep, but you know you need you're fine the next morning. So sometimes you would, you know, take those. Mm-hmm. Uh, under supervised, very strict conditions and things like that. Did you like ever that. feel like after you took Ambien that like the next morning you'd be groggy at all? Um, yeah, I mean, there's those days you're a little foggy, you know, it depends on when you take it, but they were pretty strict on time frames and when you could fly and not fly and all that kind of stuff. And as long as you follow those rules. And I have to say most people did, because even though we joked around and played and teased each other and all that kind of stuff, when it came to the professional part of it, you know, you're a rock solid professional on, for, on you know, on all the, especially the safety stuff. Cause you're not just endangering yourself, you're endangering whoever you're flying with or anything else. So, you know, I think. And luckily my experience was, was all positive with that. I never really saw, um, people that abused it and, and some people didn't understand why we needed it, but it was, it definitely was safer and it was very controlled and it was not anything that was crazy and out of control. I think people have said stories, oh man, they're on drugs and this, that. Well, it wasn't, we weren't like Elvis, you know, uppers, downers, uppers, downers. I got a show tonight, you know, and then shooting out TVs. <laughs> we didn't shoot out any TVs on my, while I was there that I know of, so. So we, we talked about on the phone um, last week about you guys doing debriefs after doing a flight. Mm-hmm. And I think you spoke about after every flight you guys do, you do a debrief afterwards. So, you know, that's one of the things I've tried to carry on after the military mm-hmm. is everything we we do. I think we could always do it better. Even the most successful thing, we can always do, do it better or look back at things and go, hey, we tried this and it worked awesome. Let's make sure we do that each time. So it's not always a negative thing, but yeah, every time people think we just go jump in the jets and fly, well, we'd always have a brief prior to the flight. So you'd sit there and it depends on what the flight was, but for an hour or so before the flight, and then we would go sign our paperwork and then we'd go and we'd do a pre-flight and start. And so, I mean, that whole process is a couple hours just even before you take it off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after every single flight, I'm not saying that there wasn't one, but 99.9% of every flight I ever did in my entire career, you came back in and you debriefed the flight. And we had and the different platforms had different things, but most of the time, like in the last, in the 16s, we had tapes, we'd sync up the tapes, we would draw the uh, different uh, things we did on the board, uh, we had scores, and we we write down the parameters. And we no matter from second lieutenant to four star, 
you went in there and whoever was the flight lead and was leading the brief said what each person did that could do better, what you screwed up, uh, the stuff you did good. And you did that on every flight, always. When we landed on ships, anybody that's out there in carrier aviation knows that every plane that landed, you see those guys, you know, guy you see on TV on the phones. Mm-hmm. And they're and they're called LSOs, landing signal officers, in the yellow shirts. They're on the side and they're coming down and they're you know going call the ball and right for right all that kind of stuff. You get grades every flight. You get a grade on, and those grades are posted outside the ready room. Really? So and if you get crappy grades, people are like, what happens if you get crappy grades? We well, get kicked off the ship. Um, and so you know, not only do you get kind of briefed by your LSO. But also you brief every flight. We go back and do, and a lot of people call them after action reports, like mm-hmm. on bigger operations, stuff like that. But you always go back after anything. It's the only way to learn. Because you might say you did something in a fire and, hey, I, you know, this situation happened, so I grabbed whatever, this or that, and knocked out a window or whatever. And that may be a great thing. But if you don't tell anybody about it, nobody's going to know. And that's, that maybe could save somebody else's life or... I mean, there's just no way to get better, in my opinion, in a in an organized way without debriefing what went wrong or what went right. And it's not personal. It's not like, oh, you know, you broke in that door or your, you know, your mom is this, you know, whatever. It's not like it's not a personal thing. And people that take it personal have the wrong idea. You have to debrief and brief and, and talk about those things and learn because also most skills we have in life you have to practice over and over again or those things will or get rusty. And it's, and once again, it's not a lack of knowledge, but you know, muscle memory, uh, being able to, you've already worked out a million scenarios in your head from your debrief. So when something happens, sometimes you, you can immediately recognize, Hey, I've seen that this is going to work And those seconds, especially in flying. But I'm sure with, especially with what you guys too, those seconds can make a difference whether it's successful and somebody lives or not. So I just, I think it's huge to, evaluate how things went each time and improve on those. Cause the one thing I have learned, the more I've done, and, and this is what I'll say, it's like when I started doing humanitarian work and, and you'll see where I'm going with this, but everybody will say, Oh, you do, you've done all this now for years. You've helped all these people, man. Don't you feel satisfied? I know. And I usually say, no, what I've learned is, is that I don't do enough. And I think when you, you're willing to accept that you can always learn and debrief and admit when you're wrong and learn new things, I think that what you start to learn is, is, wow, I really don't know a lot. And the more you learn, you want to learn more. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and people that say, I've got it, I know it. Well, they're full of crap. I personally think, and I'll almost guarantee, I'll guarantee it. <laughs> they're full of crap because I, we, we all can learn and uh, it drives me nuts. To me, one of my biggest pet peeves, and I could mention stories, but it doesn't matter. When you ask somebody something that you know, they don't know the answer, but won't admit they don't know. And not, not only is it just stupid, but it's dangerous in certain uh, professions. It's more dangerous to be with somebody who won't admit what they don't know, what they don't understand, how they can get better, because they don't want to think it's that, I don't know what what it is, if it's arrogance, if it's pride, or what it is. It could be them thinking they don't want to be seen as stupid. Yeah, and it's Simple not. I've gained more respect. I think I shared a story with you. You did. And it's a good story. I'd like to, if you could tell it again. So those that are familiar with Harrier jets, uh, the preferred way to land is either a short landing or an RVL, a rolling vertical landing, or hovering, right? Because that's what the plane's made for. But we had to, like you, I'm sure you have to monthly or or biannual, annually, you have to have certain things you train, check off the list. Yeah, yeah right, I did yeah, that. I, so I'm current. We, you know, we'd say I'm current in that, whatever. So we had to do so many conventional landings. 
in a conventional landing in a Harrier is when we have the nozzles aft. Um, so the, the thruster is pointing backwards, to use civilian words, and, and land like a normal airplane. The, the, the reality is a Harrier is not really made to do that, meaning it's got one big main mount and it, the brakes aren't really made to be used that way all the time because you usually land fairly slow. But we'd have to do it because if we had a problem with our, um, our, our duct system where they use bleed air to, to, to make us turn and stuff while we hover, if there's a fire in there, we want to close all those ducts, and the only way to do that is to have our nozzles aft. So basically, that's the emergency. So if we have possible fire, we land nozzles aft. And we had to be proficient in that because it was a little squirrely. Well, anyway, I was practicing at Cherry Point. Uh, they had what they called a center mat. Four runways led to a big like football field in the middle. You'd land one direction, you'd pull in the little football field, then you'd take off the other direction. And so it was flowing that way. But anyway, when you'd land, this was the procedure. So you'd land conventionally. You'd have your nozzles aft. You would land, flare. Once you touch down... You would pull to idle, then you would take your nozzle lever, which is right next to your throttle lever, and then you would pull it all the way back over a detent, which brought your nozzles about, oh, I can't remember now, two and a half, three degrees forward. Then you'd power back up with your other lever. Once you'd slow down, you'd take that and you'd take it back down. Then you'd take the other lever, pull it back up, put your nozzles back out. And you go boom, 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 kind of like that. And it was all mechanical, so it's not automatic. And one of the times, you see, I'm going to say on this podcast, I did something really stupid. I touched on the ground, and instead of pulling my um, nozzles back over the detent because the throttle also had a detent when you slammed it to idle you had to lift it up and kind of putting it around the detent and that would shut off the fuel to the engines i.e shutting off the jet turning the key off so to speak <laughs> and instead of pulling the nozzles my hand got screwed up and i pulled and i i flamed out the jet and i was on the runway rolling out so it's not like i was going to crash but the nozzles were down and i was rolling down the runway and the whole time my mind wasn't even, I was looking where I was going, but I was kind of like, crap. All right. I'm a young lieutenant and I just shut down the jet and I'm, I'm, I have enough speed. I'm going to coast to the center mat and shut down. So I did. And, uh, then I'm just sitting there, just sitting there. And the tower is like, Hey, uh, shank, uh, one, two, three, whatever my call sign was that day. Uh, you all right. <laughs> I'm good. Good tower. Just, Stand by. I'm going to switch to ground. I'm going to get towed in. You good to go? No, I'm good. Good. <laughs> so I wasn't bothering anybody. So they said, okay, roger that switch, switch ground or whatever. So, and then I, anyway, I called up maintenance and said, Hey maintenance, I need you to tow me in because I knew I sat there. I literally did for a few minutes. It wasn't right away. Cause I, as a guy, you know, or I shouldn't say as a guy, but as a fighter pilot guy or whatever, I was sitting there, how can I fix this? How can I get out and push the nozzles up, restart this jet, <laughs> which you couldn't do. Right. Uh, so I'm just sitting there and finally I'm, I just, all right. So I called maintenance and said, Hey, tow me in. Hey, you okay? Everybody went, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Quit talking to me. Just come out and tow me in. And so they towed me in and then I got into maintenance and I think I'd shared with you before when you go to fly and you check the books and then when you bring it back, there's some codes if something's wrong with it. It's like in flight, no abort, pre-flight, you know, before flight, abort, no abort. Anyway, you put all these things, you write down what's problem. And a lot of times, um, Guys don't know, or they write up stuff to cover their mistakes, I guess. And I didn't learn this till later. But anyway, so I wrote in there, uh, you know, basically nothing's wrong with the jet. I'm an idiot. I shut it down. And I turned it into maintenance. And I remember that day I gained the most respect and was like the hero of maintenance. And he came around the, uh, is a W04. I cannot remember his name, but um, anyway, he came around and shook my hand. And I was kind of like, what are you doing? I thought he was being a smart aleck, going to make fun of me. He's like, no. He's like, he's like, I just gained a lot of respect for you 
because if you'd written down, I don't know why it just shut down, it flamed down on me. We'd had to take in it and done all sorts of maintenance procedures. It couldn't have taken a few days, a ton of man hours to waste their time because I didn't just admit I screwed up. You know, I'm human. I'm not proud of it, but I'm going to be honest and tell you. And that taught me a huge lesson that day that to just be honest, because what I did wasn't malicious. Yeah, it was stupid. I mean, but being the safety officer of the squadron, we looked in the past, there's actually in the past a lot of accidents that happen in the aviation field from um, guys grabbing the wrong lever, this, that. That's why ergonomically they've made jets through the years with like this knob's round, this knob's square. So um, texturally you can feel the difference to try to alleviate some of those accidents that happen. And that taught me because before you're like, ah, I never grabbed the wrong knob. Well, I did and I admitted it and gained a lot of respect from folks. And that's where I took that later on in leadership roles, just tell, just be honest and tell guys, listen, don't be flippant. Well, I don't know what the hell, or nobody didn't know. I was like, I don't know this. And maybe I should, maybe I should, but I'm going to find out, but I'm not going to BS you because BSing you is going to waste man hours and time and, and money and confidence people will have in you. And so I've always been very upfront when I was not an expert or didn't know the answers with somebody. And, and to be honest with you, I've had a lot of people, even through the years that said that was fairly refreshing to them that I was, you know, because if people do walk around and it's great in certain situations to be confident, but nobody has all the answers to be a good leader. You don't have to be an expert. When I was commander before, I was not an expert in all the fields of the people under me. I didn't have to be, but what I had to do was clearly communicate to those folks what I needed, have trusted my people to be experts and then have them come back to me and give me some options and explain to me why stuff worked. And then we figured out together that I made the ultimate decision, but it was admitting what I don't know, listening to those experts, not letting those experts rule your decision, but then educating you on, on the best way to get to your goal. And, um, so anyway, that was a long story, but that was a lesson that to this day I've carried with me. When you were in the Marine Corps and you taught those leadership courses, you know how many years you did that for? Well, you know, it's kind of ongoing because, and I think all the services have this, but the Marine Corps obviously I know most about. When you started off, every rank, including the enlisted and officer ranks, you have, well, number one is a minimum uh, re- reading uh, book, a reading list. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the basics, my for second lieutenant, you had like Sun Tzu, The Art of War, Soldier's Load, Mobility of a Nation, Got, Forgotten Soldier by Guy Say. I can't believe I can remember all these books, but... uh um, anyway, these were, and they were great books and sometimes they're not even about military. I think I told you the other day on the second lieutenant list, if it's still there, second or first lieutenant, I can't remember. Our oldest is a first lieutenant in the Marine Corps, but he told me ready player one is one of the reading books. And sometimes it's leadership or philosophies or anyway, there's different reasons why people put the, the books on the list, but it wasn't until I'll be honest with you. It wasn't until the Marine Corps that I started reading a lot. To be honest with you, in, college, in high school, uh, prior to the internet, you probably don't even know. You, you, what are those books called? That um, like uh, Cliff's Notes. Oh, no, Cliff's Notes. Oh, Cliff's Notes? We didn't yeah. even have computers. So. <laughs> Cliff's Notes. You know, yeah. I'm like, I oh my god, I can't get past two pages. Let me read these, and I'll make something <laughs> up. You know, and uh, I didn't really get it at the time. And but I started. It kind of opened up reading and knowing history, and I started to love history after school. You know, through the Marine Corps. Because we're huge based in history, learn lessons from history, and then and read what people have learned in, in very, not just combat or tactical related stuff, but in leadership stuff, and all sorts of different things. And so that was an ongoing process. You constantly had professional education, and all services have that. And through prior to each rank, you know, we had um, 
a command and staff and war college and all this kind of stuff. So you're always trying to better yourself. And I don't know what the statistics are now, but I know when I, um, before I retired, we have in the United States, one of the most educated enlisted forces we've ever had in our lives. A tremendous amount of our enlisted forces have their associate's degree and in a very high number. And I don't know what those are, so I don't want to throw out numbers what they were because I'm sure they're different now, um, have their uh, bachelor's degrees. And um, so we have a very, very educated force. I know you always had this stigma back in the day, back in the Vietnam era, where it's like, oh, yeah, he only went to the Marine Corps because it was either either go to jail for, you know, <laughs> busting up the Boeing alley or go to the Marine Corps. And, and I don't know that that did or didn't really happen, but... Um, I can say that our, our, our forces enlisted and officer are some of the best educated folks in the world. And, um, and it, and it breeds this, um, it just really, it, it breeds an environment of constantly wanting to learn, which is why I think once again, back to the after action reports and everything, it's the only way to get better is to study the past, study what you did, mis- good and bad. You have to learn the bad or you're going to repeat it. So as of 2017, it says the vast majority of enlisted personnel, 92% have completed high school or some college, and then compares to 60% of all U.S. adults ages 18 to 44, fewer than 1 in 10 enlisted personnel, 7% have bachelor's degree compared to 19% of all adults 18 to 44 degrees. So still a pretty large amount. Yeah. Still a pretty large amount. And I think that, um, you know, that I think that shows in how professional our, our forces are. Um, and, and how well they do things. I mean, it's a different service. You know, you had, it's just a different service. I mean, you look back in the day when, let's take World War II, for example, it wasn't uncommon for uh, a guy to go over as a second lieutenant and leave as a full bird colonel, and he's still 20, 21 years old back in World War II. Some crazy stories. Well, a lot of people are getting killed. Yeah. But also they learned and learned, and they screwed up a lot. You look back aviation-wise, I can tell you that, the majority of deaths and crashes in World War II were from training accidents. They weren't from combat. And we lost a tremendous amount in combat, but it was just dangerous. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know a lot about flight physiology, uh, doing what they call G-lock, G-induced loss of consciousness, especially on like bomber pilots that would pull out and just pull, 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 and, and they would lose consciousness and then wake up and crash. And there were all sorts of things we didn't know that we've learned and learned from debriefing and and uh, flight surgeons have been an instrumental part of that years ago when, you know, what happened, the guys that lived. Um, and then they've developed so many things to enhance just everything. And once again, it's always been through constant evaluation, debriefing. What did you do- know? What did you learn? The books that started out, um, we had books called the NATOPs. Uh, Naval Aviation um, Training Operating Procedure Manual. I think that's what the acronym is. It's been a long time. But anyway, we'd always sort of joke, but say that book was written in blood because what, you know, when it started out it was small, but then all those procedures you learned through the years have been through screw ups, been debriefing people that have died, and you just learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. And I think, you know, you get in those situations. I think we've talked about this. Certain organizations think, yeah, I got it. I don't need to debrief. What's the big deal? I'll just, I'll just go and I, I don't know your situation, but I'm just guessing. Oh yeah, it's a fire. I go squirt water on it. We're done. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there, it's a lot more technical than that. There's yeah. a lot more science to it than that. And there's new guys that come in and stress you. And you know, this, you can train all day long, 
squirting out a fire on a on a on a training building or I think I'm not sure what you guys call yeah, those buildings. We have training buildings right, yeah. take a burn, uh, but burn when you throw somebody in some situation where people are screaming and people are screaming and crap's falling down and maybe a buddy just got crushed by something, it's a lot different than just standing stress. Yeah. Stress and we called it the fog of war. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, where you got stuff blowing up, things go wrong, loud noises, all that stuff and 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 so you may have trained forever, but I got, I would say, especially new guys after their first big fire or something, uh, just like anything we did first time in combat, those were probably the most important times to debrief and not wait. I know that sounds crazy, but we would, when I was doing night sorties, getting my night call, we were flying through the mountains. Our, our schedule was different. We were on night flights. We slept all day. We'd start flying in the middle of the night. We're flying 300 feet through the mountains with goggles on. That's so cool. It was cool. I mean, I'll admit it was pretty <laughs> awesome. But I remember me and the instructor, we'd get, we were done. It was, you know, who knows, one, two in the morning, whatever time it was. We'd get our six pack. We'd throw it down there, and then we'd stay up. We wouldn't go to bed really? because you need to We debrief after. You know, you want to get stuff when it's fresh in the mind, you know, so you can learn. It's when you need to do it, putting stuff on, or we'll talk about it later. That's just laziness. And it, and, you know, it just, I think it breeds bad habits. And I just can't say how important it is to immediately come back. Now, granted, if you spent two straight days, you're dead tired, somebody just passed away, maybe, or something like that, Mm -hmm. I get it. Have some rest, get your brain a little rested because there's a certain point of no return, but in just normal situations, but even still you should be like, Hey, we're going to hit some, hit the rack, get some sleep. And then, you know, seven hours from now at zero nine or whatever, we're going to have call get coffee and we're going to debrief this. I mean, it's just so important, I think, in learning and developing. And I think good leaders will do that. What do you think when you were teaching or going through these leader courses or operations, what was something that is a quality that you see in a lot of people that is a good leadership quality? Something that just kind of spoke out to you? You know, I think those folks that were just extremely honest and humble and didn't have their pride in the way that, number one, I think we talked about this before, communication. Mm -hmm. And I know people throw that out, oh, better communication. But it really is. I need to... You need to understand what I need you to do, and you need to understand what you did wrong or did right. And I need to tell you also what you're doing is important and why we're doing it. I mean, granted, in the military, you did stuff and you did what your commander in chief said, as long as the legal order and all that kind of stuff. But I also think it's important to not just say, when people say stuff like, do it because I said so. Or we call it leading by the shoulder, you know, pointing at your rank or whatever. Just do this because I said you shut, you know, whatever. That, that is the worst leadership in the world. And you can sort of get away with it, I think, in the military because, you know, if you don't do it, you could get in trouble. But I still think the job and the performance people do who respect their leaders and want to do it for their leaders and sometimes go above and beyond, not just because of their personality, because they don't want to disappoint that's a big deal. And I see it all the time. I'll, I've been in organizations and I won't say who <laughs> those that know me know what I'm talking about, but organizations where people were in charge because they had what I called ass and seat time because they put a dent in their desk chair for 20 years. They were now in charge, which is the worst. Some of the worst leaders I've ever seen because they were, 
I don't know, not thoughtful of others. They were arrogant. They, you know, didn't want to hear ideas from anybody. Didn't want any, how dare anybody question. They wanted yes people. Um, and those are the worst and most dangerous leaders. You think it's because they either never came up through the ranks, they were never the lowest guy on the totem pole, or if they did, they forgot about it? I think so. I mean, I think some of it, I mean, you could definitely go back to how they were raised probably. Uh, and I'm not saying that you're predestined if you're raised by a couple jerk parents that you're going to be a jerk, but, but you know, it's all those, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's all those things I think that leads to how you're raised and not just that, maybe how your teachers were, how your coaches were in high school. Um, and then, and then sometimes that example you set is leaders. And I always hate when I would see leaders in different services or different organizations that would treat the new guys like crap because all you're teaching those guys are is when you get to that rank mm-hmm. or that position to treat the other guys like crap. And, and I just, it's just wrong. And I'm not saying, cause at the end of the day, when I was in charge of stuff, I wasn't, it wasn't a democracy, but I did involve them unless it was something I just needed to make a decision, but I would just, I would be fairly honest. It doesn't mean you have to tell everybody everything, but it has to say, listen guys, here's, here's our goal or commander's intent or whatever. Here's what we've been tasked to do. Here's what we have to do it with. And here's the lanes we have to stay in. See, the fact that you've explained it, like, oh, being open about it, because obviously I'm in that newer generation. So to me, when I'm coming into the fire service, I you know, was upsetting a lot of people because I'd ask all these very basic questions that they're like, you don't understand this? I'm like, well, it's not. Ex-. At the time, I couldn't really say too much. because, But now knowing it's like, it's just not as explained as as well as it should have been. Like, I don't even like, why do we do this? Like, why do we pull hose that way? It doesn't make yeah. sense. Like, why are we doing this? And it was never explained. And then, and you can also see in those guys, when you would ask, why are we pulling a Z load, which is a different type of a fold in the hose? Yeah. Why do we pull a Z load? And they would get upset because they don't know. And like, well, why are you just asking questions? You're just asking questions to be annoying. Like, no, I just, I want to <laughs> know why we pull a Z load. Cause to me, I don't think this is the best way to pull this. Like it's, it requires almost two people to do it. Like it's, I think that's kind of dumb. Like, well, we, and, and there's we nothing wrong in asking that. questions because somebody mm-hmm. may come back to you and say, well, we do it for this reason. I get that it seems harder, but here's the reason why, mm-hmm. because you're asking and I'd rather have somebody ask and sit back there and go, no, I got it all. I'm all good. I got it all because you know, they don't, they're either afraid to ask or once again, they're that personality. Yeah. But, and, and I'll say this, people always say when I ask a question, I'm like, this is a dumb question. Oh, there's no dumb questions. Well, bullshit. There's dumb questions, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in general, a person, in my opinion, if somebody that is subordinate to you is afraid to ask a question, then you've set a bad environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you may have a dumb question for the third time. Yes. Holy crap, we're going to watch, you know, Ghostbusters tonight, you know, Matt, you know, you've asked me five times. That's a dumb question. So I don't mean to say they're important dumb questions, but you should be able to say, hey, I really have this serious question. I've had situations where I've asked a question like that. And then they're like, oh, you don't know that. And this kept going on. Mm -hmm. And I'm finally like, you're right. I'm a freaking idiot. All right. I'm stupid. I'm dumb. You're superior. Now that we've established that, I really still don't know. So could you just answer my question? Because it, it really does infuriate me because the job, if they don't want that job, then fine. Go back down. Just be the guy. Be the bottom of the total pole. Do that. But once you go up, if you're not willing to have guys ask you questions and know, and, and, and to be able to tell them why or explain why we do things, uh, or maybe there's a better way to do it. Mm-hmm. And if they don't know, or I've had this before, 
and I irritated people when I said this, I was sent in to evaluate a training scenario for an organization I was with and to see how it was. And I asked those questions. I asked a bunch of questions. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? And they were getting irritated with my questions. And they said to me, well, I don't know. We've always done it that way. And I said, well, that's not an answer. That's an excuse. <laughs> you know, so if you don't know why we're doing it, if it doesn't make sense why we're doing it, you can't tell me who said to do it in the first place. Then, like you said, maybe that's one again, once again, where you learn, well, well maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe it would save time, resource, money, manpower, whatever. And so it's okay to have, which is also why we debriefed everything, because there were things that we did a certain way. Um, I remember when we first got targeting pods, which we didn't have for the longest time. Marines were always the last to get, at least the, the hair community. And we asked a tremendous amount of questions that were probably very, uh, very base level to the guys that have been using them forever. But I truly wanted to know, hey, when you, you know, which you might look back at the layman, but those were serious things. And, and I can tell you from procedures, from even, even the first radars and how you did the ladder on radars, meaning, you know, from this distance and closing in once you got closer and then even targeting by all these procedures were initially one thing. And then they tightened up and tightened up and tightened up and tightened up. But if somebody said, oh, what do you ask me? That's stupid. I don't know. You never would have gotten better on those things because you, there's no way to know what you don't know. And so it really does make me mad when people won't explain why because maybe there is a very valid reason but at this point you go away not knowing number one why you do it mm -hmm. number two you go away going does this guy even know so you lose a little bit of confidence in your leader number three you know it could have been better and number four you're just irritated and disgruntled now and you may not ask a question in the future that might change something for the better maybe save somebody's life so you've set this bad environment this darkness around you know, a learning environment. And I'm sorry, but every environment we're in, no matter what job it is, is a learning environment. And so. Do you think that's more generationally driven or do you think it's more of just how we're gaining more knowledge on how education works? No, I, I, I don't think, and maybe I'm wrong with this. I just think it's a personality thing. I'm sure we had jerk caveman leaders and, you know, <laughs> and cool guy caveman leaders. Why is that wheel round now? Shut up. I don't know. <laughs> Go get food, you know. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the generations learn different ways. I mm -hmm. think today we have a massive uh, attention deficit disorder with it's young amazing. kids. It's amazing. I'll tell you that. And just coming from, I mean, simple as something. I told you my background. I have yeah. a, a film and theater background yes. before I went to the Marine Corps. Very interesting. I know. So, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I kill with flair. But <laughs> we have, you know, you look back in the day and watch old movies. Old movies that have very slow edits to them. Mm -hmm. And then nowadays, you know, it's like boom, 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 boom. Fast. It's because they like, we need this rhythm. It's short attention span. They're going to get bored, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and I think, I don't, so I don't think, I think that changes the way maybe you teach stuff for sure. You may change your teaching methods, but I think the basic principles of why you teach and open forums and asking questions, all is the same. Just the way you deliver or teach those messages is probably a little different. And you have to know your crowd too. Mm -hmm. And I'll say this. So when I left the Marine Corps, I um, went to the Guard, which the Air Guard loved it to death, but it was much different than the Marine Corps. And then I also, at the same time, started leading, I think we talked about before, humanitarian trips down to Central Mexico. And I went from leading Marines to dealing with mostly church volunteers. And I got to tell you, I first started out 
trying to lead my volunteer church folks like Marines, which did not go over very say, well. How did that go out? <laughs> it didn't go out. But, you know, and I frustrated. I wanted to pull my hair out, what little, you know, hair I had in my short, high and tight haircut. And, but, it, and it wasn't, I wouldn't blame, it wasn't their fault. It was my fault because I didn't know my crowd. I didn't know my people. I didn't know who was working for me. And that's another huge thing. When you're leading people, everybody's different. You know, this one size fits all. I mean, yeah, it's a great base to start. But then you do have to learn who you're teaching and, and, and who you're working with. And maybe you want only a certain kind of person, maybe like certain things in the Marine Corps. So you only teach one way. But I think good leaders and good, like we had sergeant instructors or platoon sergeants, we had still recognized the differences in folks and either yelled at some, encouraged some. I mean, there's different. I think you have to have that flexibility to not just, I don't think a leader can read off of a script. I think if all you have is a script, and that's all you got. And those are your only answers. And you can only follow that. I don't think you're a good leader because, you know, what we say in the Marine Corps, Semper Gumby, always flexible, right? Because you do have to, I think, evolve. You have the same foundation, but you have to evolve to who you're teaching or the situations you're teaching in. Or maybe something happens where you can pull um, some important lessons from. So I think a good leader also has to has to have some definitely some flexibility, too. And understanding personalities. Was oh, that, yeah. Was that something that... Is there any books or anything that you recommend on how to kind of understand uh, people's personalities? Like, obviously, there's the five love, love languages, but there's really, I don't think you're going to be wanting to do that. <laughs> but what was what was something that to you? You know, one of the books I read that was a great book. I don't remember if it was a reading list, but I remember Commander had me read it. It was uh, Carnegie's book, How to Win, Flint, Win to, Friends to, and Influence yes. Others. Is that the name of it? Yeah, that's the, that's the name of the and book. And I've actually read it a couple times, and not the whole time. The next time I just pulled out some chapters and stuff. But, uh, and there's all sorts of books and I would have to look back and I apologize. I didn't write down some of those, but that was one of the, that book, um, Sun Tzu, the art of war, which, you know, people argue is Sun Tzu even real? Was he a made up person? But that has some great, and, and even though it says the art of war, there are also great life lessons to learn in those situations. Um, but I would say the biggest thing is educating yourself, learning, knowing your people. I mean, some just getting to know them. I when I was when I was with the NRA for about uh, seven years, uh, one of the things I made sure I did was always contact. We had chairman of our committees, and I made sure at least I always reached out to them on a regular basis. And I made sure also that when I reached out to them, that sometimes I did I talked zero percent about the NRA. Just talked to them about their family. Hey, what's going on? You hunting this year? What's going on? And then I would hang up. And sometimes in the beginning, people are like, uh, what, do, what do you want? What's going on? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> Just seeing what you're doing, man. See what you're, you know, and, and you learn, folks, because I think you have to show, people have to understand you care about them too. I mean, even through, and I've tried to explain that when people have had kids go through boot camp, especially Marine boot camp, and, and prepare them. I always try to say, listen, they're going to scream at you. They're going to berate you. They're going to give you way more than you can handle. And they know you can't handle it. They want to see how you react to the pressure and stress and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, those guys love you. They really do. I mean, it's hard when they're screaming at you and making you vomit because you worked out so hard. But they're doing that stuff because they care. And, you know, that's another goofy situation where, and you start to realize that and you look back on it and you realize those guys really did really cared about everything we did. Sorry, my phone keeps that's blowing right. up here. Real quick on that. I had a guy on here, his name is Brandon Cox, and he talked about, he's a GPD, a Greenwood police officer, mm -hmm. and he was a DI, a drill instructor in the mm -hmm. Marine Corps. 
And he talked about that. He's, he kept calling, he kept referring to them all as my kids. Exactly. Like the entire time. And mm-hmm. I, we talked about that. I'm like, why do you keep calling them your kids? And he's like, cause they're like my kids. Like mm-hmm. I, I yell at them. I scream. Like I do whatever I can. I can, you know, put them down in the dirt, make them eat dirt. And I'm like, he's like, but they're my kids. And you come out and you love them and you just, you're so proud of them. They become your brothers. And I'm like, that is such a weird dynamic to be in that position of that kind of a power of authority and still be calling them your children, which when they really did care. And, I, and once again, somebody will have a story. Oh, I knew a bad one. Well, I'm sure there's bad ones. Yeah. I hate that. Yeah. I knew one bad guy because you could find that anywhere. But, um, and I won't, uh, the last story, cause I know we're getting tight on time. I just thought this was a neat scenario. So I went through OCS with a, a buddy of mine named Dan Serkin and Dan's a retired Marine Colonel. He actually flew uh, for HMX one and, for the folks that don't know, that's the, the, the president's squadron. So he flew, I oh, think wow. it was four years for the, uh, I can't remember which presidents he flew for, but, um, we were both for whatever reason, um, I think it was Hawaii. I ran into him. I can't remember, but anyway, we were out at a Marine base somewhere and we had connected and we were, I think we were in the food court having lunch. And we saw one of our Sergeant instructors from OCS from Quantico from years before we were both senior captains and we went up to this guy and said, Staff Sergeant Louisa. I still remember his name. And at this time, I think he was a gunny now. And he turned around. He said, Candidate Sirkin and Candidate Haggard. <laughs> this is, I mean, he had hundreds of officer candidates go through. And he turned around and immediately knew who we were. Because that's how, I mean, they lived with us almost that entire time. It's, it's like they, were, they weren't there 24 hours a day. But it seemed like they were there 24 hours a day. And, and uh, we talked and had a great conversation but it just kind of ingrained into me what i already knew is that these guys really really knew who we were and cared about us and uh, when you talk about promotional pro- or becoming an officer in officer school for like promotional processes how long were your guys's transitions from going from a position that you have not yet filled to getting that position ready to get filled and then filling it so you know it's kind of in the in the in the lower ranks and enlisted and officer you have almost it's almost unless you if you're a good Marine, you do your, your, um, your professional education, you do all that kind of stuff. You kind of can move up at a certain, I think from second lieutenant to first lieutenant, it was usually about two years. Um, mine was held up because of tail hook 91. So What's that? <laughs> if any of you don't know, Google tail hook 91 and see what happened out there with the tail hook association. Okay, yeah. And you'll see why I was, everybody was under investigation. Why my, <laughs> not me, the entire Marine Corps. I was actually was not in Vegas when this happened, but there was a little scandal that went on. And so oh, promotion. No. Oh yeah. It's kind of a, uh, kind of funny. Actually, I have a, a aviation patch that I still have. It's down in my basement on the wall that we made up. It was not an official Navy <laughs> Marine Corps pa- patch, but it had uh, Bart Simpson on there and it said, uh, uh, wasn't there. You can't prove anything. So anyway, bad history of the uh, tailhook association. But anyway, uh, so that's usually two years, another couple of years or so to captain. And then, but at, at that point, and once again, you still have to continue to do your uh, professional education and stuff. Uh, a lot of it has to do with, they have so many slots to fill. Um, they have certain Certain uh, jobs uh, come with max ranks, like this max rank, maybe an E7 max in that, or a, or an O4 max in that position, or whatever kind of thing. And you only have so many of those. So at that point, it start it does start to get really competitive. And so at that point, you just have to 
you have your professional education that everybody has to do. You have your physical fitness. And so you want to be the best in your physical fitness. Um, obviously you want to be a good leader. So in the Marine Corps, they have what's called uh, fitness reports. And that's basically an annual evaluation by your um, superior that ranks you amongst other Marines and all the different qualities, leadership and this and job knowledge and all that kind of stuff. And you get ranked in that way also. And so there's multiple things. It's not just one. You can't just be, oh, I'm, I'm a great pilot, but you could be a great pilot and you could be a slob, never do your P professional education. And you know this, you're never going to get promoted. Um, so it's really being as professional as possible, doing everything you can to make yourself better and not just the minimum because of the Marine Corps. And I know it's the other service, but that's just where I have most mm -hmm. of my experience. The minimum was the minimum. It doesn't mean, because you have a lot of these people, well, all I got to do is this. Well, most Marines that I knew is going, well, what, wh how do I max this out? And I can guarantee you those that just made the minimum never went very far. And so it were those individuals that wanted to be the best in everything they did. They wanted to be the first in their, their, their pull-ups and be the first in their run or be the first, you know, getting the job done for the skip or maybe not having to be asked at all, do their stuff ahead of time, you know, always being there to, and then also maybe walking the flight line in the mornings, doing your FOD checks. It's a foreign object damage. Every morning maintenance would walk the, the, uh, the flight line and you wouldn't have to, but I guarantee you those, the officers that jumped out there and walked with the maintenance crew got respect from their maintenance. And, and those little things, those little things that you did extra to not only make yourself better, but to help others out, to know them better, all those things that were even unofficial help people in promotion. It was just always trying to be the best and not be the best by helping others be their best because that's a big difference, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I could be the the best, but I could be a jerk and an arrogant guy that nobody likes or doesn't want to follow. Or I could be the guy that's the best. And I've made myself the best by helping others and sometimes putting them in the limelight and not caring who gets the, the, um, you know, the applause and stuff, as long as you made somebody better, because even though you do that may not get the applause, there's people that see it. The people in charge see that sort of stuff. And, um, I don't know. That's kind of it in a nutshell. It's, I don't know. That was, you, you can get more involved in that. Yeah, that was no, that was great just because we're crunching close on time. Craig, uh, Craig, I really do appreciate you coming on and talking and speaking about leadership and what you taught and learned while you're experiencing the military. I do appreciate that. I appreciate you having me. I always enjoy. I think we end up talking. Our time gets crunched because we spend more time talking before the show. <laughs> yes. But, you know, I, lo I love this. And uh, and it's this, you know, you make me a better person doing this. So I oh, appreciate man. it. That means a lot to me. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, we talked for a whole hour before we started yeah, recording, which we could have recorded that whole hour. So right I'm there. a perfect politician. Yeah. I like to talk a lot, right? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Thanks, man. You know what you and I have in common? We both finish things. Thank you so much for watching this video all the way to the end or even listening if you're on Spotify or Anchor or anywhere else podcasts are found. Let me know what you think down in the comment section below or if you were listening, uh, just only listening, go ahead and hit me up on Instagram. It's more with Stumpo and go ahead and contact me. Just send me a DM. Tell me what you think, what you like, what you didn't like, if you believed him or if you didn't believe him or anything that you can pull for him and learn from for yourself is what this is all about. Thank you again so much and God bless you guys.